Last time we spoke about the horrific Battle of Bloody Ridge, and then the Battle of Oribawa. After performing countless fighting withdrawals, Brigadier Kenneth Ether asked for permission to withdraw from Oribawa to head south for the Imata Ridge. General Allen allowed Ether to pull the men back, but warned, There won't be any withdrawal from the Yamada position, Ken. You'll die there, if necessary. While the Japanese were now very close to Port Moresby, their supply lines had fallen apart and they could go no further. Setbacks on Guadalcanal further hindered the supply issue for Hori and his men on Green Hell. Hori went from being on the offensive to being on the defensive and ironically would begin performing the exact same type of fighting withdrawals the Australians had been making against his men. General MacArthur complained and soon General Blamey was sent to replace General Rawal. But today, we are venturing away from New Guinea and heading back to Guadalcanal. This episode is the actions along the Mananikau. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where soon we'll have a multi-part series on some of the medals of honor earned during the battle for Guadalcanal. Check it out, it mean a lot to me. With Hori's bitter fighting withdrawal along the Kokoda track, and the Japanese defeat during the Battle of Bloody Ridge, the Japanese high command was beginning to realize they were losing the initiative against the Allies. Within mere hours of receiving the news Kawaguchi had failed to defeat the Americans at Bloody Ridge, the Imperial Headquarters, the Combined Fleet, and the 17th Army all began planning a concerted effort to regain Guadalcanal. The Naval General Staff now saw Guadalcanal as a chosen site of the much-anticipated all-out American counterattack. It very well could be the decisive battle of the war. The Imperial Navy resolved to recapture Guadalcanal and forced itself to meet the total American commitment in kind by tossing every aircraft and all the big guns they could upon the Marines. The IGN asked the IGA their views on the strategic situation and inquired if additional forces could be spared for the Pacific. The IGA agreed that Guadalcanal required an all-out attack and suggested because the Soviet-German conflict was going so well, they could now potentially spare some units for the Southeast Pacific from Manchuria. Over in Rabaul, the 17th Army and the 8th Fleet forged new plans simultaneously with that of Tokyo. They resolved to place the main body of the 2nd Division with elements of the 38th Division on Guadalcanal as fast as possible. This meant a large halt on resources going over to New Guinea for the boys trying to seize Port Moresby. Accordingly, the forces on New Guinea began to pull back and establish defenses to protect Buna. 
The 17th Army petitioned the Imperial HQ for reinforcements in the form of one infantry division, one tank regiment, a few artillery regiments, more supply regiments, and some communication units. The Imperial HQ met this checklist in full, tapping into the Manchurian Reservoir. Thus, the 17th Army swelled by a large score of units. The most important were the 38th Division, who had recently conquered Hong Kong, Sumatra, Timor, and begun training to seize Ceylon. The 8th Tank Regiment was added onto this, giving the 17th some real fighting power. On September the 17th, General Sugiyama explained to Emperor Hirohito that Kawaguchi had failed because his surprise attack through the jungle simply fell apart. Sugiyama then explained how in October, they would have additional forces and would better plan out their attack on Henderson Field. Thus, Imperial HQ held confidence about recapturing Guadalcanal and authorized a plan calling for both the IGN and the IGA to work together to reinforce, cooperate, and recapture Guadalcanal. Because we both know how well they work together. Now, General Hayakutake and his staff were briefed on Kawaguchi's failure by Colonel Matsumoto, but many of them simply blamed the IGN for the loss. They believed the IGN had failed to gain air superiority and rushed a rash attack with a false report of the enemy reinforcements. Regardless, new faces arrived to Guadalcanal, one we haven't heard about in quite some time, Colonel Masanobu Tsoiji. Tsoiji enjoyed very close ties to Hideki Tojo, and as noted by historian H.P. Wilmot, he enjoyed an extremely unsavory reputation even in an army hardly noted for its exacting standards and personal behavior. Soji, as you might recall, was responsible for many heinous war crimes. He was joined by Major General Shoichi Miyazuki and Colonel Nori Kanuma. For the Marines, after the Battle of Bloody Ridge, there was a lull period for around two weeks. Lull is a strong word in this case, for the Marines still had to endure much hardship. They had to patrol, defend their positions at night, watch out for Japanese snipers 24-7, and worry about a defensive perimeter over 15 square miles with Henderson Field in the middle. Henderson Field, of course, suffered Japanese bombing raids practically every day. By mid-September, the physical and emotional condition of the boys on Guadalcanal was straining. Reduced rations, tattered clothes, the absence of livable quarters were breaking the men down. Soon marines were keeping busy constructing shacks using old crates, rice bags, tree trunks and such. The engineers were building better dugouts, but no structure within the defensive perimeter was bulletproof, so to say at least. The boys rushed to line up for the first of their two daily meals at 7 to 7.30 a.m. The cooks handed out to the air crew preferred rations, cereals, or as some of the pilots called it, thin gruel, with limited quantities of milk, sugar, and the essentials for survival, that being coffee. The Japanese tended to do their air raids between 11.30 to 2 p.m., leading the men to nickname it Tojo Time. The men received daily reports they called Today's Score, telling them how well their pilots did against the enemy. The Cactus Air Force were never without excitement. The Seabees would often conduct experiments to make life more bearable for everyone. One of these was to turn a Japanese safe into an oven to cook bread. And that one, folks, is worth a Google. It's pretty interesting to look at. The medical personnel had a lot of their work cut out for them on Guadalcanal. 
After the Battle of Alligator Creek, there was a devastating strain of gastroenteritis that took the life of a single man. Soon, the medical teams recorded the first case of dengue fever, two weeks after landing. But it was during the third week when the most important medical task showed itself, one that could threaten the American hold on the island, possibly more so than any Japanese attack. You guessed it, malaria. On September the 1st, 1,724 men had malaria. By October, it would be 2,630. November, 2,413. And through December, 913. All for a grand total of 8,580 for the 1st Marine Division. In the South Pacific as a whole, malaria caused five times as many casualties as the Japanese. On Guadalcanal, Diseases accounted for two-thirds of all men who would become ineffective. Wounds were about one-quarter. Now, dealing with malaria required action on several fronts. By November, Guadalcanal would have a special malaria control unit. One medication for the pesky disease was prophylactics, but this turned out to be quite ineffective. This was for two reasons. Number one, men engaged in combat being shelled constantly, did not often take the time to appreciate the threat of mosquitoes. Number two, rumors sprang around that the Adderbrime yellowed your skin, and worse, it threatened your sexual potency. As you might imagine, it led to a reluctancy for its use. Now for the Japanese, they were suffering far, far more. As I have probably said countless times, the Japanese began to refer to Guadalcanal as Starvation Island, or island of death by starvation. Rations were reduced to a third, and as one soldier of the 17th Army would write in his journal, Rice cakes and candies appear in my dreams. What they usually got to eat was rice, often moldy and sometimes soybeans. Another soldier wrote, Our bodies are so tired, they're like raw cotton. The reasons for the lack of food were bad management and a terrible logistical problem. The Tokyo Express runs were, of course, safer than sending regular transports, but they could not carry nearly enough supplies. The Tokyo Express also came to the area around Kamimbo because it afforded more concealment. This also meant the men had to trek two full days on foot from Kamimbo to the Matanikau Area for supplies, often under attack from P-40s. The IGN were, as one of my sources put it, almost criminally negligent in relentlessly forwarding troops without an increase in supplies. After the Battle of Bloody Ridge, the Tokyo Express runs suddenly shifted to moving larger quantities of food, and that is by no coincidence. Around 1,000 men were in makeshift hospitals because of malnutrition, malaria, and dysentery. Many men died each day, and very few would ultimately survive their experience on Starvation Island. The grimmest fate of all was perhaps for the 11th and 13th construction units who were dispersed along the supply route and told to forage for their own food. As for the American Navy, they would be dealt a terrible loss in mid-September. The IGN had deployed nine submarines in a patrol line across the path of the American convoys. On September the 15th at 12.50, the I-19 led by Commander Takahashi Kinashi raised his periscope when he sighted the USS Wasp 
The Wasp and Hornet were escorting a convoy and performing raids. At 2.45 p.m., Kanashi fired six Model 95 torpedoes at the Wasp at a range of just 1,000 yards. Two torpedoes hit the Wasp on her starboard side forward. One of the torpedoes gored into her gasoline storage tanks and the second exploded abreast of her forward bomb magazine, both unleashing tremendous shockwaves. Aircraft were tossed into the air and crashed down, with punctured fuel tanks sending rivers of fuel across the decks. Fires began all over the hangar deck, igniting bombs, debt charges, and ammunition. An endless series of explosions began to unfold as the Wasp took a 15-degree list. Fortunately for the American carriers, a destroyer, the O'Brien, wound up taking a torpedo hit for them at 2.51, right in her bow. The battleship North Carolina saw the Wasp listing and came in closer to see if she could help, earning herself a torpedo hit at 2.52 on her port side. The explosion tore a 32 by 18 foot hole 20 feet below the waterline, causing her to list 5.5 degrees, and five men were killed. Despite her injury, the North Carolina was a tough ship and managed to pull 25 knots. The North Carolina would depart the South Pacific for repairs joined by the O'Brien. Wasp, on the other hand, was a blazing inferno. Many of her crew were dead or injured, and the fire control teams were not making any progress. At 3.20, the painful decision was made to abandon ship. Of her 2,247 crew, all but 137 would be rescued, with 400 wounded. 25 of Wasp's airborne aircraft were recovered, but the other 45 carrier-bound aircraft would go down with the ship. The I-15 watched and reported the scuttling of the Wasp at 9 p.m. by three torpedoes fired by the destroyer Lansdowne. The loss of the Wasp following the torpedoing of the Saratoga on August the 31st and a near torpedoing of the Hornet on September the 6th was met by intense inquiries by Admiral Nimitz. His reports indicated the carrier's groups had operated in the same waters for over three weeks and had routinely cruised in submarine-infested waters. Many after the Pacific War pointed out, as I have in this series, how the IGN submarine doctrine, a rather old pre-war one, dissuaded them from attacking commercial convoys. The IGN preferred to utilize their submarines offensively in naval battles. But here is one of those rare glimpses of success for the IGN submarines against warships. It was quite a feat to knock out some aircraft carriers. Though the IGN would cling to this doctrine for pretty much the entire war, and it would be a major hindrance. Now, Admiral Gormley would only have one operational carrier to contest the IGN in the South Pacific. Back to the situation on Guadalcanal. On September the 19th, the 1st Marine Division issued a new defensive plan. They established for the first time a complete perimeter defense, with a line running from Alligator Creek inland along all the commanding ground to the hills and ridges west of Lunga. They now held a defense in depth. Vandegrift and his staff reasoned any new attacks would come from either the east, west, or south. But he intended to meet the attacks on his east or west, not at the perimeter, but instead at crossing points on the Teneru or the Matanikau, where his marines could perform flanking movements or amphibious hooks. The area to the south was a nightmare. Hell, it's where many of Kawaguchi's men got lost frolicking in the jungle. Anyone who came from that area to attack the defenses would most likely be fatigued and shaken just from the logistics of getting there. 
Alongside the changeup for the defensive perimeter, Vandegrift also took the time to look at his commanders. The last few weeks of battle had exposed many of his officers to have performances not in tune with Vandegrift's standards. Many of the senior officers were on this list, such as Vandegrift's chief of staff for the division, Colonel Capers James. Another who also happened to be a personal friend was Colonel Leroy Hunt, the commander of the 5th Marines. On September the 8th, a request came in from General Holcomb to take excess senior officers created by recent promotions and return them to the United States to help form new units. This request afforded Vandegrift a unique and less painful opportunity to shuffle some officers. He used this as a guise that he was sending some officers back to the United States in fairness, of them being with the division the longest. Replacing Colonel James was the newly promoted Colonel Gerald Thomas. Next was Lieutenant Colonel Merrill Twinning. Merritt Edson, who now bore the eagles of a full colonel, replaced Hunt to command the 5th Marines. The new commander for the 1st Raid Battalion was Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Griffith, whom Vandegrift described as a splendid officer. Vandegrift also took the opportunity to replace a number of old battalion commanders with younger lieutenant colonels and majors who displayed aggressive spirit. Another thing Vandegrift did was form a new special unit. During one of the clashes with Kawaguchi's retreating men, companies A and B of the 1st Battalion of the 1st Marines had fallen into an ambush that cost them 18 men dead. To this, Vandegrift began to realize he needed to cultivate some men with special aptitudes for jungle craft and navigation. The man Vandegrift assigned to the job would be William J. Whaling, an executive officer of the 5th Marines, who had formed an ad hoc unit of guides. Whaling would lead a special unit christened as the Scout Snipers. Each rifle battalion was requested to send three men, preferably one from each rifle company. These individuals would need to be the outdoors types, the kind of guys who liked roughing it in the woods, or, in this case, jungles. Gerald Thomas described these men as the weirdest characters you've ever seen, real Daniel Boone types. Vandegrift assigned a number of tasks for the Whaler Scout Snipers. As guides, they helped battalions and companies avoid countermarches and fatigue. They led patrols through the nightmarish jungles, helping units gather tactical intelligence. Another important command change was that of Admiral McCain, reluctantly leaving his job as commander of the South Pacific Air Forces to take up a more important staff position in Washington. Vandegrift sincerely regretted McCain's departure, as Rear Admiral Aubrey Finch took command. A short lull in the air war went alongside the switch. No Japanese air raids reached Guadalcanal between September the 14th to the 27th. Both sides were reorganizing themselves. The 21st Air Flotilla, led by Rear Admiral Toshinosuke Ichimaru, came to Keveng with 23 beddies of the Kanuya Air Group on September the 16th. Nine zeros of the Kanuya Group moved to Rabal alongside 21 zeros from the 3rd Air Group on September the 17th. On September the 18th, the 25th Air Flotilla's fighters, dive bombers, patrol planes, and all twin-engine bombers were to be commanded by the 26th Air Flotilla. By September the 20th, Rabal held 45 long-range zeros, 26 short-range zeros, 5 vowels, 6 flying boats, and another reconnaissance plane, and 34 beddies. For the Americans on Guadalcanal, they now had 36 Wildcats, 25 Dauntless, 7 Avengers, and 3 P-40s. 
Meanwhile, MacArthur's air forces began a campaign against Rabaul on September the 15th, and for two nights, B-17s destroyed four Bettys, three Zeros, and damaged three Bettys and eight Zeros. The only Japanese defense during these night raids were their anti-aircraft fire, which Admiral Unaki described in his diary on September the 20th as indescribably uncoordinated and unskilled. To remedy this, experts aboard the super battleships Yamato and her sister Musashi were posted on Raval. On September the 19th, Admiral Fitch flew to Guadalcanal to visit Vandegrift, accompanied by the military affairs correspondent for the New York Times, Hanson Baldwin. Baldwin came to gather information, but also to dispense it. He told Vandegrift that the American people falsely believed that the Marines held the entire island, rather than a small area around Lunga Point. He also told them that Washington top officials were increasingly alarmed over the situation and that Gormley's HQ was quite pessimistic. Are you going to hold this beachhead? Vandegrift replied, Hell yes, why not? Now while there was definitely a lull going on, one thing that was not lulling was the stomachs of the Japanese on Guadalcanal. The men were starving, and on the night of September the 20th, the destroyers Suzunami, Yudachi, Shikinami, and Ushio, each towing a barge, were bringing ammunition and provisions to Kamimimbo. Seven Navy and three Marine Dauntlesses, led by Lieutenant Commander Louise Kern, hit the Shikinami. Then on September the 21st, the destroyers Yurinami, Kagero, Shirayuki, Hamakaze, all made a provision run to Kamimimbo, only to be attacked by the American planes and in the end managed to get only a third of the supplies to Guadalcanal. The growing proficiency of the American air attacks at night was deeply impacting the Tokyo Express. Then on September the 24th, out of an urgent need, Destroyer Division 24 sortied for Guadalcanal bearing 280 men of the 4th Infantry Regiment, plus some construction equipment. Just off Kamimimbo, nine Dauntless and one Avenger attacked them, heavily damaging the Umikaze and the Urikaze. The culprit to the Tokyo Express's plight was the moon, which gave just enough illumination to allow the Americans to hit their warships. This also resulted in no runs occurring for the rest of September. The Imperial General Headquarters were forming plans for the recapture of Guadalcanal and they realized they needed to get reinforcements to the island by October the 14th to permit a major offensive to take place on October the 20th. The IGN had two methods of getting men to Guadalcanal. The well-tested rat transportation, i.e. the Tokyo Express, using 27 destroyers and two seaplane carriers, or there was the ant transportation, which employed barges to lift heavy artillery pieces too large for destroyer decks. The Japanese knew they had to neutralize or eliminate the chief obstacle frustrating them, the Cactus Air Force. They intended to hit the Cactus Air Force via artillery fire upon Henderson Field in early October. To help in this venture, the IGN would send aircraft to begin softening up the airfield on September the 26th. Now, as I've mentioned, the Tokyo Express was not going to make any runs for the rest of September because they had to wait for moonless nights while the Americans would be fully able to strengthen their position. Well, the 17th Army was very pissed off by this, and on September the 26th, they began to propose the movement of a substantial amount of designated reinforcements to go to Guadalcanal via a convoy of large transport ships. 
The next day, the IGA and the IGN staff officers on Rabaul revised the reinforcement scheme calling for the Tokyo Express runs to recommence on October the 1st and continue each night until October the 14th. The ant transportation would begin from Shortland and commence delivering six barge loads of materials each night to Guadalcanal starting on October the 1st. Special runs would be made on October the 3rd and the 6th by seaplane carrier Nishin carrying heavy artillery. The aerial offensive against Henderson Field would be stepped up and a convoy would move the reinforcements directly to the 17th Army's position on Guadalcanal. To secure this new plan, Colonel Tsuiji of the 17th Army would fly to truck on September the 28th to present it to Admiral Yamamoto for approval. Tsuiji described the plight of the officers and the men of the 17th Army on Guadalcanal because of the lack of supplies as They are getting thinner than Mahatma Gandhi himself. Admiral Yamamoto replied, If army men have been starving through lack of supplies, then the navy should be ashamed of itself. Admiral Yamamoto assented to five valuable transports to be used for the proposed high-speed convoy. Yamamoto would incorporate the high-speed convoy into another plan for the combined fleet to destroy the American fleet. X-Day for this plan would be fixed for October the 14th, with the Y-Day being the anticipated date of landing offensives around six days after X-Day. However, before these plans could be set into motion, General Vandegrift had decided to carry out his own little plan. Now, Kawaguchi was immersed in the recovery and reorganization of his battered command when he suddenly found himself having no way to repel any American attack. Japanese radio intelligence analysts suspected the Allies might launch a new amphibious assault in the Solomons aimed between the Matanikau and Kamimbo. Doing so could split up the Japanese forces. Quite a dangerous situation. So on September the 24th, Kawaguchi ordered the 2nd and 3rd battalions alongside the 124th Infantry and some naval units to assume positions on high ground along the coast so they could perform counterattacks on enemy landings. The 4th Infantry Regiment was also prepared to coordinate with Colonel Oka to hit any landings that might happen. On the same day, increased American air raids occurred, alarming Colonel Oka, who decided to pull his men back to the eastern side of the Matanikau, presuming there was going to be a landing at any moment. Oka directed the 5th Company of the 124th Infantry to get the Bear Survivors, that being the Kume Battalion, over to Mount Austin, and he pulled back the 8th Company from across the river to its eastern bank. Around sunset of September the 24th, Two Japanese officers tasked with performing an inspection of the area concluded they needed to move up 15-centimeter howitzers to shell Henderson Field, and to do so, they would need to pass across the sandbar at the mouth of the Matanikau. The next day, Kawaguchi received instructions to seize enclaves on the eastern bank of the Matanikau for the artillery pieces to be assembled. This instruction obviously messed with Kawaguchi's plans to repel American amphibious landings, but before Kawaguchi could figure out a solution, another threat emerged. Vandegrift realized that Kawaguchi's main body had withdrawn west of the Matanikau after their terrible defeat at Bloody Ridge. For three days after the battle, the area between the marine defensive lines west of the Lunga Point and the Matanikau contained individuals and small groups of stragglers trying to get west. While Vandegrift's men were reconstructing the defensive lines, he could not spare any major forces to secure the line of the Matanikau. 
Instead, he and his staff decided to try and dominate the area west of their lines by mounting a series of operations designed to expel the small groups of Japanese and to try and prevent them from reconsolidating into larger forces to strike back at the defensive positions. The obvious choice for the mission were the 7th Marines, who were not only fresh, but in the words of Gerald Thomas, loaded with talent. Amongst their ranks was Lieutenant Colonel Louis Chesty Poller, the 44-year-old commander of the 1st Battalion. Martin Clemens said of him, He had a chin like a bulldozer blade and a barrel chest. The Virginian man was the very model of a Marine infantry officer, and he backed his appearance up with his performance. His mission was clearly to be exploratory. Advance west astride the northern slopes of Mount Austin, cross the Matanikau, and examine the area between the Matanikau and Kokumbona. Following Polar's expedition, the 1st Raider Battalion advanced to Kokumbona and began to form a patrol base. Polar's battalion, around 900 men strong, moved out on September the 23rd and late the next afternoon shocked the hell out of some Japanese who were cooking rice on the northwest slope of Mount Austin. The Marines attacked and drove the Japanese off before darkness, which resulted in 7 Marine deaths and 25 wounded. 18 of which needed stretchers. Polar radioed in for some help for his wounded, and he received it in the form of the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Marines. The 2nd Battalion linked up with Polar on September the 25th, while the wounded were escorted back by the companies A and B of the 1st Battalion of the 7th Marines. The rest of the force advanced along what the Japanese called the Mazuru Road, not finding any action as the Japanese peeled south to try and avoid them. To cover the withdrawal of the 2nd Battalion and the Bear Battalion to the west bank of the Matanikau, Colonel Oka ordered his 12th Company to seize a position on the eastern bank of the river at the One Log Bridge. On September the 26th, Polar and the Marines reached the Matanikau and went north until 11.25am where the 12th Company brushed into its column. Neither side recognized the other surprisingly, and Polar's men continued marching north as the 12th Company positioned themselves on the eastern side of the river. When Polar tried to cross at the mouth of the Matanikau, he was met with motor fire from the western bank, and then ran straight into Oka's well-dug 9th Company. The 9th Company was subjected to bombardments from air, land, and sea, but they did not break. Division HQ ordered the 1st Raider Battalion to join Polar at the Matanikau, and Colonel Edson stepped up to take command of the combined forces with Polar acting as his second-in-command. They hastily formed a plan of attack, taking the Raiders and Polar's Company C to hit the eastern bank of the Matanikau, cross over the One Log Bridge, and then attack the Matanikau village from itself. The 2nd Battalion of the 5th Marines would hold the line of the river near the bar and assist the Raiders whenever possible. Air and artillery bombardments would support the attacks as fast as they could. After a brutal night, the raiders moved out in the morning of September the 27th as they approached the One Log Bridge. They were met with intense fire from the Japanese 12th Company. The 12th Company had well-chosen positions on the eastern bank, from which they could motor fire and rifle fire upon the western bank. At the front of the advance guard was Major Kenneth Bailey of the Bloody Ridge Battle fame. Bailey had told correspondents Trisgaskis three days before that he admired the young Marines under his command so much that, quote, that when it comes to a job that's pretty rugged, you'd rather go yourself than send them in. Bailey 
bravely did just that, and he was killed by machine gun fire. Lieutenant Colonel Griffith, who was wounded but refused to be evacuated, tried to slip two companies to outflank the 12th, but they soon became pinned down, adding 10 casualties for the Marines. At the sandbar, the 9th Company hurled back vigorous assaults made by the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Marines. Then the 11th Air Fleet made an appearance. Admiral Takahashi had sent 18 Bettys and 38 Zeros, which were seen by Coast Watchers at 12.30. The Americans responded with 17 Marine and 18 Navy Wildcats. The Zero Escorts became separated from the bombers for about two minutes, and during that brief window, the Wildcats went to town on the Bettys. Two Bettys were shot down, one ditched, and another 11 sustained damage, all at the cost of two Wildcat pilots wounded. The Americans also took down a Zero during the dogfights. The Japanese still managed to hit Henderson Field, destroying a Dauntless and two Avengers, damaged another four other Dauntless and three Avengers. One Japanese bomb disrupted the Division HQ's signal net, resulting in Griffith's situation report becoming all garbled up, leaving a false impression the Raiders had managed to cross the Matanikau and were now battling on its western bank. This led to orders being made at 1.30 for the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Marines to renew their attack at the mouth of the Matanikau, and for three companies of the 1st Battalion of the 7th Marines to take some boats from Lunga Point and land west of Point Cruz to attack the Japanese rear. Companies A, B, and D, led by Major Otho Rogers, landed near Point Cruz and pushed inland 500 yards to the 1st Ridgeline. Colonel Oka ordered the 2nd Battalion of the 124th Infantry, about a mile west of the Marine landing site, to attack them while the 12th Company, facing the Raiders, would reinforce them as well. The Marines found themselves under heavy fire, and from the offset, Major Rogers was killed by a motor round while another company commander was wounded. Captain Charles Kelly Jr. took command as the Japanese began cutting them off from the beach. The landing party had not brought a radio, so the Marines used their white t-shirts to spell out the word HELP on the beach. <laughs> Some pretty crazy stuff. Second Lieutenant Dale Leslie, flying a Dauntless, saw the shirt message and reported it in. This prompted Edson to halt the attack, despite Puller screaming to continue as it would gravely endanger the trapped landing party. Polar wasted no time and got aboard the destroyer Monsin at Kokum and headed for Point Cruz with some landing craft. When the landing craft made it to the original landing site, they were greeted with Japanese machine gun fire as the landing party had moved further east. Lieutenant Leslie perceived the situation and guided the boats to the area the landing marines were as the Monsin bombarded a path to the beach. The 2nd Battalion of the 124th Infantry moved west to reorganize, leading the 8th Company engaged with Kelly's Marines to perform desperate hand-to-hand -hand combat as their orders were simply to destroy the enemy. Lieutenant Leslie herded some reluctant boat crews to the beach and at the shore the Japanese continued to fire upon them. Coast Guard Petty Officer Douglas Monroe was killed using his landing craft to shield others. As the Marines made their desperate escape to the perimeter, it was estimated they had 18 dead and 25 wounded in the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, 16 dead and 68 wounded for the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, and 36 dead and 7 wounded for the 1st Raiders, bringing in a grand total of 60 dead and 100 wounded. The Japanese casualties are more difficult to estimate, but they were most likely substantially less. Colonel Oka was credited with a successful repelling of the Marine attack, 
and this resulted in a first bit of good news to come out of Guadalcanal for the Japanese. After assessing the situation, the Marines figured out that the operation had been improvised, and initiated without meaningful intelligence on the enemy situation or terrain. The Marines had gone past their support range, and did not coordinate properly with the artillery nor air support. Division HQ ascribed the successful withdrawal of the 1st Battalion of the 7th Marines to, quote, Its fighting qualities, brilliant improvisation on the part of those responsible for the movement, and to the great good fortune which attended it. The Marines recognized the Japanese for their good handling of the situation, but also pointed out the folly with the landing party at Point Cruz not having radio communication. Vandegrift made a report of the event containing this message. The great lesson, however, is to be found embodied in the passage in the field service regulations which warns against drifting aimlessly into action. For in the last analysis, it is to be observed that this battle was unpremeditated and was fought without definite purpose other than the natural one of closing with the enemies at once and upon every occasion. On September the 28th, another Japanese bombing mission of 27 Bettys and 42 Zeros left Rabaul to hit Guadalcanal. They were spotted by Coast Watchers at 12.58, prompting 34 Wildcats to intercept them before they reached Henderson Field. It would be one of the largest air battles of the Guadalcanal campaign, and produced some very large claims. The American pilots reported the destruction of 34 bombers and a single Zero. The actual score was 7 Bettys but the Americans riddled all the bombers with bullets. The Japanese, for their part, shot down a Dauntless, which was flying over the north coast at the time, and damaged countless Wildcats. During the afternoon, the Cactus Air Force received reinforcements. Six Dauntless from Wasp and Saratoga, led by Lieutenant Commander John Elridge, and four Avengers, led by Lieutenant Harwood. The Japanese officers at Rabaul studied the results of their two days of raiding, and they soon realized if they kept it up, by a week's time, such losses would claim all the Bettys on Raval. They highlighted an issue with coordination between bombers and escorts as the primary cause for such losses, but they did acknowledge the American tactics were quite good. The Wildcats consistently targeted the bombers while trying to avoid combat with the Zeros. They deemed it necessary to complete an airfield at Buin, and decided to confine their bombers to night raids and feints to lure Wildcats into Zeros. Completing an airfield at Buen was gravely important as it would amplify the Japanese aerial capabilities immensely. They would be able to deploy short-range Zeros from Buen, which could not make the trek from Rabaul. Moreover, their long-range Zeros could loiter even longer over Guadalcanal from Buen. On August the 31st, Admiral Yamamoto ordered Buen to be completed ASAP. And on September the 29th, the Japanese tossed another 9 Bettys and 27 Zeros to raid and this time, the bombers managed to lure in 33 Wildcats, resulting in one Wildcat being shot down, but still at the cost of two Zeros. Admiral Nimitz then made a visit to Guadalcanal, and to Vandegrift's secret delight witnessed how horrible the rain and mud could be. On October the 1st, Nimitz decorated as many men as he could with medals he had on hand. The Tokyo Express began its heavy workload on October the 1st, taking Major General Yumio Nasu, his HQ, and the 4th Infantry Regiment to Guadalcanal. The Americans threw five Dauntless and five Avengers at the convoy, damaging the destroyer, Hatsuyuki, but the landings were successful. 
The next day saw another raid of 9 Bettys and 36 Zeros. This time, the feint worked a lot better, claiming 6 Wildcats for the cost of 1 Zero. On October the 3rd, the Tokyo Express brought 9 artillery pieces, 4 15cm howitzers, 330 men, and Lieutenant General Masio Murama, using the seaplane carrier Nishin. Nishin made a stop along the way at Tasafranga to grab another 320 men, 16 tons of provisions, alongside her destroyer escorts who took with them 190 men and 15 tons of provisions to Kamimbo. The large convoy was escorted by 27 Zeros and 15 Bettys who raided Henderson Field. They were met by 29 Wildcats who were more wise to the faint tactic now. The Americans destroyed 9 Zeros and were still able to send 8 Dauntless and 3 Avengers to hit the large convoy. Nisian and her escorts at 525 were attacked by this force but managed to remain unscathed. A second group of 5 Dauntless were sent at 10.20pm to hit Nisian and they landed hits on her, damaging her engine room. The next morning, seven Dauntless and four Avengers hunted down Nisin and her destroyer escorts, finding them 140 miles up the channel along the center of the Solomons. The Americans were unable to land any hits, but a group of B-17s returning from a bombing mission to Buka wandered into the area. This led a Japanese float plane to deliberately ram a B-17 as the pilot and his co-pilot successfully parachuted away to safety leaving nine men aboard that B-17 to die. There were no air raids on October the 4th and 5th, as the Japanese aircraft were escorting the Tokyo Express, which managed to deliver another 750 men and 24 tons of supplies to Kemimbo without incident. On October the 5th, Gormley scheduled a major retaliation and risked his only carrier, Hornet, to try and hit the Japanese shipping at Shortland, basically their lion's den. Gormley simultaneously dispatched B-17s against Buka and the Cactus Air Force against Rakata Bay. Hornet launched 18 Dauntless, 15 Avengers, and 16 Wildcats, but almost immediately the formation became unraveled because of some really tough overcast, resulting in three Dauntless and two Avengers never really joining up. While pressing through the bitter rain squalls, Hornet's wave took down two float planes in the air en route. Once they reached their target, they destroyed two more float planes and four Mavis on the water. On the return flight, they also managed to destroy two Bettys performing a patrol. The attacks on Rakata Bay and Buka were thwarted by overcast and thunderstorms. The raid on Shortland Island led to a postponed run for the Nisin scheduled on October the 6th, as the IGN was frantically trying to hunt down the Hornet for over two days. On October the 5th, the Tokyo Express was bearing 650 men two field guns, and ammunition when they were met by nine Dauntless led by Lieutenant Commander Kern, 150 miles from Guadalcanal. The Americans managed to severely damage the destroyer Minigumo. All of these American air attacks on the convoys led to the cancellation for the ant transportation. The Japanese were now predicting a shortfall of 3,000 men and many heavy weapons for Guadalcanal, prompting Admiral Mikawa to send light cruiser Tatsuta and the seaplane carrier Chitois to help out. On October the 6th, the Tokyo Express landed four anti-tank guns, four regimental guns, 450 soldiers, and 150 SNLF marines of the 4th Mazaru unit. Still, the Japanese predicted they would not meet their deadline and Day X had been pushed back to October the 15th. Going a bit back in time, Lieutenant General Matayuma came ashore at 10 p.m. on October the 3rd at Tasafaranga. He quickly established his HQ on the Mamara River, 
and quickly learned that of the 9,000 men who came to the island before him, 2,000 were dead and 5,000 were too weak to conduct offensive warfare. The survivors on units like the Bear Battalion and Kawaguchi's artillery unit lacked all of their equipment. Most of the 1,000 men currently hospitalized were doomed to die. Kawaguchi had been ordered explicitly on September the 25th, then again on the 28th, to seize positions on the eastern bank of the Matanikau. But Kawaguchi declined to do this, prompting the exacerbated 17th Army HQ to order him on the 30th to quote, Realize occupation of the east bank of the Matanikau immediately. Kawaguchi only began to place a single infantry company on the east side of the river's mouth the very day Matayuma arrived. After learning what he needed, Matayuma ordered General Nasu to supervise the occupation of artillery firing positions on the eastern bank of the Matanikau. He detailed the 29th Infantry Regiment to secure the coast from the Matanikau to Poha, while the 16th Infantry Regiment would take a position between Poha and Mamura. Kawaguchi's exhausted 124th Infantry Regiment was to go west to Bonegi and guard the coast. On October the 5th, Nasu ordered the 4th Infantry Regiment to place its 1st Battalion south of Point Cruz and its 3rd Battalion west of the One Log Bridge. Now since the colossal failure of the Marine offensives on September the 27th, the 1st Marine Division had concentrated their efforts on completing their defensive perimeter so they would be able to free up troops to perform large-scale offensives. Soon patrols were reporting the Japanese activity and it looked like another major Japanese offensive was about to begin. Vandegrift elected to strike first. The target was to seize Kokumbona and to push the Japanese beyond Poha. If they were successful, Kokumbona would be garrisoned and the perimeter would be much more viable. Vandegrift ordered the 5th Marines, minus the 1st Battalion, to advance along the coast to cross the Matanikau. Behind them was the Whaling Group, the 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines, and the 7th Marines minus the 3rd Battalion. The 7th and 2nd Marines would turn inland and cross the Matanikau at the One Log Bridge. Once across, the Whaling Group would attack down the first ridge line west of the river, and the 7th Marines would wheel and advance west of the Whaling Group. The Marines hoped this maneuver would trap large enemy forces around the Matanikau, and if successful, the 5th Marines would be able to take Kokumbona. This time, unlike September the 27th, the Division HQ retained control of the operation and was very careful to make sure air and artillery support would be efficient. Before the engagement, writer John Hersey, accompanying the attack, asked Lieutenant Colonel Julian Frisbee of the 7th Marines, Have you ever seen men killed on the field of battle? Frisbee replied, It's possible. To think of dead enemy as dead animals, but as for the dead marines, they look like dirty-faced little boys who have just gone to bed without being tucked in by their mothers. At 10 a.m. on October the 7th, the attack began. The 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines made contact, just 1,000 yards, with the 3rd Company, 4th Infantry Regiment, due 500 yards east of the Matanikau. The 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines stumbled upon some Japanese cleaning their clothes 500 yards of the river bank and killed four of them. The Japanese 3rd Company yielded ground very slowly despite being hit by 75mm guns on half-tracks. In view of the Japanese strength, Edson asked for additional troops, and the depleted 1st Raider Battalion grabbed their guns and they marched. 
By nightfall, the 3rd Battalion of the 5th Marines were holding the Matanikau from the coast to the flank of the 2nd Battalion, excluding a single bulge about 400 yards inland which held the survivors of the Japanese 3rd Company. Meanwhile, the whaling group and the 7th Marines went south and reached some Japanese encampments east of the One Log Bridge, but there was little opposition to be had. To divert the Japanese attention from the planned crossing, of the whaling group and 7th marines, during the night, the 5th marines made some noise at the Matanikau mouth. On October the 7th, the Japanese commanders remained ignorant of the events occurring along the Matanikau. At 2.40, Nasu ordered the 1st and 3rd battalions of the 4th infantry regiment to extend control around 1,000 yards east of the Matanikau. The 3rd battalion pushed its 9th company across the Matanikau by sundown, but the 1st battalion was unable to release its emergency report on the day's actions until 5pm. Regardless, it only reached the regimental commander, Colonel Nakaguma, at 3am. The account reported the 3rd company holding out, and the 2nd company moving to its relief. Nakaguma had ordered the 1st battalion to check the enemy at the Matanikau, and for the 2nd battalion to cross over the One Log Bridge and encircle the Marines. Torrential rain on October the 8th made the region a slippery mess, leading elements of the whaling group and the 7th Marines to reach the crest of the ridge on the west bank of the Matanikau, just a mile due south of Point Cruz. As the last hours of daylight were dimming, the 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines sought to clear the west bank north of the crossing site, while the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines advanced on the east bank to assist them, and then cross over. From this rather small skirmish, the writer I mentioned, John Hersey, crafted one of the classic vignettes of what action was like in World War II. Company H, led by Captain Charles Rigaud, of the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines descended the eastern slopes of the valley towards the Matanikau Fork. Just before the company reached the river, there was a high flat snap of a single shot from a Japanese rifle. From that moment onward, a barrage of noise and images assaulted Hersey. Machine gun bursts punctuated a constant fabric, with rifle fire woven between the blasts of motor shells. A thump which vibrated not just your eardrums, but your entrails. Each roar of the motor rounds were a word spoken by death. The veterans knew they were trapped on low ground, unable to effectively employ their heavy guns, and surrounded by the Japanese. To the American boys, it looked like they had just stumbled into a planned ambush. In reality, Company H simply stumbled between the Japanese 9th Company 4th Infantry Regiment on its east bank. The Marines realized many of them would die in this valley, and their deaths would not purchase any advantage for their comrades, nor their country. The eyes of the men near Hersey began to dart back along the trail down which they had entered the valley. It was then Hersey sensed the first symptom of an epidemic fear. The next sign of the growing fear was the way men started moving around. Then a wide-eyed Hersey saw the situation teeter toward a rout. And this is what he wrote. The Marines had been deeply enough indoctrinated so that even flight did not wipe out the formulas. And soon the word came, whispering back along the line, Withdraw. 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 Then they started moving back, slowly at first, then running wildly scrambling from place of cover to momentary cover. I had a hopeless desire to do something to stop the flight, 
It seemed wrong. But I couldn't do anything about it because I was caught up in the general feeling. It is curious how this feeling communicated itself. Except for a hard knot which is inside some men, courage is largely the desire to show other men that you have it. And so in a large group, when a majority have somehow signaled to each other a willingness to quit acting, it is very hard not to quit. The only way to avoid it is to be put to shame by a small group of men to whom this acting is life itself, and who refuse to quit, or by naturally courageous men doing a brave deed. It was at that moment that Captain Charles Alfred Rigaud showed himself to be a good officer and grown man. Despite snipers all around us, despite machine guns and motor fire, he stood right up on his feet and he shouted out, who in the Christ's name gave that order? This was enough to freeze the men in their tracks. They threw themselves on the ground, in attitudes of defense. They took cover behind trees, from both the enemy and the anger of their captain. Next, by a combination of blistering sarcasm, orders, and cajolery, he not only got men back into position, he got them in a mood to fight again. Where do you think you guys are going? He shouted, and... Get back in there. Take cover, you. What do you guys do? Just invent orders? Listen, it's going to be dark, and we got a job to do. You guys make me ashamed. But the most telling thing he said was, Gosh, and they call you Marines? That is some pretty crazy stuff. Simply jaw-dropping stuff. Rigaud regained control of his company, and he sent a runner to the battalion commander, Major McDougall asking permission to withdraw, though Rigaud was already pulling his men back in truth. This was just as well, because McDougal was mortally wounded by a motor shell. Even before the mayhem, the Marine commanders realized the whaling group and the 7th Marines were not going to be able to envelop the enemy by the 8th of October, so they postponed the attack for a single day, reluctantly, as they assumed the Japanese would use the day to move troops out of the planned trap. The Japanese, however, did not do this, Muniyama did not really intervene in the conduct of the action. Nasu only had enough time to try and plan the future movements of the 4th Infantry Regiment holding the One Log Bridge, and Colonel Nakaguma was marching and countermarching his 2nd Battalion to meet the fictitious landing along the coast. By dusk, action flared again near the Matanikau mouth. The survivors of the Japanese 3rd Company were trying to break out of their dead pocket and cross the sandbar. They advanced behind a smokescreen, striking Company A of the 1st Raiders. They then ran into some barbed wire, became confused, and resorted to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat, leaving 10 Marines and 36 Japanese dead in Company A's position. Very few of the Japanese 3rd Company managed to cross the river. On the 8th, the Marine Command received some intelligence that the Japanese were poised to launch an all-out attempt to recapture the island. Vandegrift elected to terminate the operation of the units west of the Matanikau, and for them to withdraw the next day through positions the 5th Marines would hold on the river. The Marines assumed the delays in pulling back would allow the Japanese to make their own withdrawal, before many of their forces could be encircled. But, Muriyama and Nasu were so badly informed about the actions for the past two days, they simply remained fixated on holding the Matanikau and recapturing the eastern bank. If you caught it just before I had mentioned, 
they had just received an erroneous report of an American landing west of Point Cruz on the 8th, prompting Nakaguma to take men there. Some really, really bad intelligence at work. So on October the 9th, the Marine battalions massed their forces to strike them in the flank and rear. Meanwhile, the Tokyo Express had executed some rather big runs on October the 8th, moving six anti-aircraft guns, two 10cm howitzers, one tractor, and 740 men. But the first scheduled raid on Henderson Field was defeated by bad weather. The second was hindered by bad transportation of some short-range Zeros to Buen, and the interception of seven Dauntless, four Avengers, and 11 Wildcats, 140 miles from Guadalcanal. On the morning of October the 9th, the Marine attack began with clear skies behind heavy artillery and aerial bombing, causing massive casualties for the Japanese. The whaling group got along the ridgeline west of the Matanikau and reached the shore of the western end of the sandbar by noon. The 7th Marines kept up with the whaling group while performing flanking maneuvers against Japanese units. Polar's 1st Battalion 7th Marines came across the Japanese 2nd Battalion 4th Infantry Regiment in a wooded ravine and called in artillery strikes combined with its own men's mortars which created what they called a machine of extermination. Unable to withstand the bombardment, the Japanese tried to escape by climbing a slope along the ravine, and as they ran up the hillside, Polar's men raked them with machine gun and rifle fire, performing absolute carnage. After expending all of their motor ammunition, Polar withdrew down the coast to cross the Matanika with the whaling group ahead of him. During this entire venture, the Marines had 65 dead and 125 wounded, but they had caused nearly 700 casualties upon the Japanese. As the Marines marched back to Henderson Field, they could see air battles occurring as the Japanese were still tossing air raids. 27 Zeros were hitting Guadalcanal to cover the Tokyo Express, and they were being met by 27 Wildcats and 8 P-39s. The American Air Forces could not prevent the Tokyo Express from landing another 400 men of the 4th Mazru SNLF and 770 soldiers including Lieutenant General Ayakutake. Ayakutake would literally take a single step onto Guadalcanal and then receive a report that he had lost the battle to take the east bank of the Matanikau and that the 4th Infantry Regiment was totally annihilated. I would like to take this time to remind all of you this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, narrated and written by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I recently did a collaboration with Dave Holland, covering all the medals of honor earned on Guadalcanal. Check it out, it means a lot to me. Oh boy, it was sure a turntables sort of episode. The Americans' first action on the Matanikau was a colossal failure. But the Japanese one-upped them by performing an even more disastrous action right after. Now Lieutenant General Hayakitake was on Guadalcanal, and he faced the daunting task of trying to get the pesky Americans off Starvation Island. 